Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. I am glad that you're here today. We're continuing this series called The Blessing. And in the late 1800s, there was a social society club in Pasadena, California called the Valley Hunt Club. And they realized that they were living a blessed life. They realized that in the month of January, that the majority of the northern United States was covered in snow. And in Pasadena, their grass was growing and their gardens were blooming. And so there was a college professor by the name of Charles F. Holder. And he stood up in one of the society meetings of the Valley Hunt Club. And he, I don't know if he talked like that, but it just makes it a better story, right? And he said, in New York, people are buried in snow. Here our flowers are blooming, our oranges are about to bear. Let's hold a festival to tell the whole world about our paradise. And in 1890, the Tournament of Roses Parade was born. And so that first year, the club organized just a variety of different events. Like there was horse-drawn carriages covered in flowers. Some were pulled by ostriches. That's real. That's there. Let me show you the picture of the first float winner from the first year of 1890. That was actually the winner. Ah, uh, you know. Let me show you last year's winner. Let me show you that one. Yep, there you go. Big difference, right? You know what I'm saying? So that first year, they had foot races and polo matches and a game of tug of war. That day attracted right around 2,000 people. In the following years, they added some new activities, such as ostrich races, bronco busting. You know there was an okie in that, right? And then they actually, one time, they had this oddity. They had a race between a camel and an elephant, and the elephant actually won the race. So in January 1 of 1902, they decided, hey, let's, um, let's add something different. They added their first college football game to the festivities. It was the tournament of East versus West. It was the champion of the Big Ten Conference would play the champion of the Pacific Conference. And the first ever college football bowl game was born. That's known as the Rose Bowl, right? And so and if I, for some of us that are older, especially those of us that love sports, some of us hate it a little bit this morning, but that's a counseling issue for later in the week, right? So if we close our eyes, we can hear that famous yet unique voice of the legendary sports pastor, Keith Jackson. And he would say, it's the granddaddy of them all. I'd do a horrible Keith Jackson impersonation, right? But you know, you can hear him say that as he would describe this prestigious Rose Bowl college football game has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm talking about today. I just thought it was a great story, right? But as I was thinking about our conversation today and this sermon that I want to talk about in this series, The Blessing, even as I was working on it this week, that famous Keith Jackson line, it's the granddaddy of them all, kept, just kept coming to my memory. As I think about what we want to talk about, not, not to because the blessing we're going to jump into today is the biggest or the best, or the most profound. It just gets the most attention. I hope over the last few weeks that I've taken time to show you in Scripture, there's a lot of areas of God's Word where it promises blessings for God's people. There are blessings we won't even get into in this series. Some of them are the most famous blessings are found in the Sermon on the Mount. That Jesus has this mass crowd, and he's up on the side of a mount. It's a very creative title for that, Sermon on the Mount, right? And he's teaching all these people, and, and he, he gives this new identity for blessing, right? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. He, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
the Oklahoma State football offensive line has got a really good chance at world domination, right? Blessed are the meek. There you go. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. And Jesus, through this list of blessings, quite frankly, he redefines what it means to be blessed. And here's the point I think Jesus is making. God's ways are counter to man's nature. Like, I would think a life that's free from pain and free from sorrow and free from grief, I would think that's a blessed life. But Jesus says, blessed is the man who mourns. I would think a guy that is a really big deal, walking proud, talking aloud, come on, drawing a crowd, baby. You know what I'm saying? I would think that's the blessed life. But Jesus says, blessed are those who are meek. Sooner fans, are you with me this morning, right? In Acts chapter 20, it recounts a story of a guy by the name of Paul who had spent a good portion of his life on mission trips. And he was actually in the southern part of Europe in what we would call Asia Minor. And he was going and he was sharing the gospel. And he would go into these cities. He would meet people, introduce them to Jesus. They would get saved. And then together they would start a church and build a church. Sometimes he would be in these cities nine, ten months. Sometimes he would be in them for three or four years. And he would just start the church work in that place. At the end of that, like he's headed back to Jerusalem. At the end of all of those missionary journeys, he's on his way back to his homeland. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, he knows things aren't going to be good. He's been prophesied to him that, Paul, you're going to be arrested. Paul, you're going to go to prison. But yet there was something on the inside of him that was compelling him to go back to Jerusalem. And on his way back, he would stop at some of these cities. So the ship's headed back to Jerusalem. Like he's, he, you know, he's headed back to his homeland. But he would stop in places like Ephesus. And he would just visit with those leaders, those guys he had spent years with starting and building this church, and he would just kind of remind him of some of those important principles that he would teach them. And then he was almost as if he was saying, hey, this is probably the last time you're going to see me. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 20. He's wrapped up all of his mission work. He's headed back to Jerusalem, and he stops and he visits with some of those churches and just, hey, let me, let me, let me give you some reminders. And that's where I want to pick up in Acts chapter 20, verse 33. He says, I've never coveted anyone's silver, gold, or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even of those who were with me. I think it's really important what Paul prefaces, what he's about to say. He's using the example of his own sacrifice. I've never wanted your money. I've never been after your gold. I've never been after your silver. I've never been in ministry for money. I've never been in this for my personal gain. I've used my own hands to provide for my own way. And I've even used my own hands and worked hard to provide for folks that were with me. And Paul is making a, making a basic life principle. If you're going to be effective in ministry, if you're going to be effective in life, if you're going to be effective in business, success requires sacrifice. And that's what he's saying. Listen. I have sacrificed in order for the sake of the gospel. I think it's so important how he prefaces what he's about to say because he's going to drop the granddaddy of them all, the blessing, right? Verse 35. And I've been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. Probably one of the main messages of Paul's ministry in his letters that he would write is he would say this. He would say, listen, I've done my best to be like Christ. 
I have done my best to live like Christ. And as you've seen me do that, if you want to live like Christ, just do what you've seen me do. And then he makes this really big statement. You should remember the words of our Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now here's the kicker of this granddaddy of them all that Paul drops out there. He's quoting Jesus. Remember when the Bible used to be a book, you know, and it had pages and paper? And you could open it up. And if Jesus said something, a lot of Bibles were what we call red letter edition. So you'd be reading in Matthew. And why did this font change color? Why is that red? That's so pretty. It's because if it was red, Jesus was talking. And so the Gospels are full of these passages that are red letters. But then once you get to Acts, there's very few red letters. And Romans and Corinthians and Hebrews. And then until you get to Revelation, so you jump over like two-thirds of the New Testament. And there's no more red letters. But in Acts, there's a couple of places. And this verse is one of them where these are actually red letters, meaning Jesus said this. He said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Here's the kicker. We don't have that recorded in any of the Gospels where Jesus said that. Like, that's not John chapter 4. Verse, like, Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't write this down anywhere where Jesus said that. That doesn't mean he didn't say it. It just means we don't have it recorded in the Gospels that he said, matter of fact, John says this in John 21, 25. He says, Jesus did a lot of things. Jesus did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world couldn't contain the books to be written. So John's saying, listen, guys, I tried. I tried to remember everything that Jesus taught. I tried to remember every miracle he did. But I'm just going to tell you, I forgot something. Matter of fact, if we wrote everything down, it would, the world couldn't even contain all of that. At some point in his ministry, we don't know when Jesus made this statement. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Here's the tension. He's talking about money. Here's the tension. Because of abuse. Because down through the years, there have been portions or sectors of the church that got this wrong. There's been people who make more out of this than really what it is. There's been people that solely only want to focus on the blessing of God and the money that comes with that. So it gets pushed back. It becomes an easy target for criticism. The critic would be, sure, it's easy for the church to say it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. You're the one that's benefiting from my giving, right? For years, I didn't even preach on the Bible and money because I just didn't, I didn't want to deal with the tension. But I've come to a place, I don't want to live in fear of criticism. I'm not going to let someone else's mistake, I'm not going to let someone else's abuse or wrong teaching or other people's criticism of church and Christianity rob me from the blessing that God has for me and rob you of the blessing that God has for you. So the context of Paul's statement is, listen, I've never been in this for personal gain. I've never cared about your gold or your silver or your money or your fine cars or your nice clothes. I've never wanted anything from you. That's the context that Paul approaches this granddaddy of them all when he says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And he's saying that He's saying, I don't, I don't want your money. I don't need your money. This would be the same Paul that would go on and say, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. He knew what it was like to have plenty. He knew what it was like to live in want. And he knew that God was going to take care of him. And so here's, here's, here's the tension. People in the church get weird when the church talks about money. So today, I'm just going to do my best. I hope. I pray. I'm just going to do my best to show you what I think the Bible says about money, about our spiritual relationship that you and I should have with giving and generosity, 
and the blessing that God offers to his children because it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. So I got to do this. I got to go way back. You will notice it is a sweater vest Sunday, which this may feel more like a history lecture than a sermon, right? So I'm going to go way back into Genesis. In the beginning, God created, right? So God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man. Before he had even created Eve, he has a conversation with Adam. And the first command, kind of the first rule that he gives Adam, right? He says, Adam, I'm going to give you this whole garden. I'm going to give you all these trees. Isn't that awesome? Look at that one right over there. That's an orange tree. Isn't orange beautiful? Orange is just fantastic. Right, right over there. That thing's going to grow bananas. That, this, thing, this vine's going to grow tomatoes. You're going to have all this stuff. Adam, I'm just going to ask. Just give me this one tree. Just don't, just don't eat off this one tree. You see, it's easy in that statement where God says don't eat from this tree to think, oh, well, God is just a fun hater. Oh, look, something else I can't do, right? God's just a God of rules and restrictions. And the problem with a lot of people have with Christianity is, is they see Christianity as just a bunch of rules and restrictions. They don't see it as a relationship at 46 years of age, I've come to see it as a protective freedom. The same that a parent would have for a child. Please don't go play out in the street. Please do not stick metal things in the life socket. That doesn't end well, right? Here's the beauty. God has given you and I, and he gave Adam the ability to make choices. Adam, I gave you life. Would you give me back the fruit of this tree? Really, the first commandment that God gave, and I'm not trying to rewrite scripture, I'm just trying to dig into the psychology of this. The first command that God gave, don't consume everything for yourself. Don't be selfish. Give something back to the one that gave you life. And then all it took was this sneaky snake. Remember, my kids were little, and I'd get out the children's Bible. They love the story of the sneaky snake, you know? All it took was this sneaky snake to come along and drop this idea of distrust in front of Adam and Eve. And they fought it hook, line, and sinker. See? God's trying to keep something from you. If he really loved you, he'd let you have anything you want. If God really loved you, he'd give you everything. He just doesn't want you to have any fun. God's trying to keep something from you. Going back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, there was a choice about humanity. There was this question, this choice of who am I going to be? Am I going to be a person that will trust the nature of God, that he's good? And there are things that will protect me. Am I going to be the person that says, I don't have to have everything for myself. I'm not going to be selfish. I can give back a tree, God, because you've given me a whole garden. Or am I going to believe God can't be trusted? Am I going to think God is here just to take from me? God's here just to keep things from me, and he doesn't want me to have any fun. And Adam and Eve, in the essence, they disobeyed God, but they distrusted the nature of God. They bought the lie that he is keeping something from me. So fast forward through the rest of the book of Genesis. You have Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the other patriarchs that are found in the book of Genesis. And you come to the descendants of Abraham that we refer to as the children of Israel. Okay, And they're living there, but all of a sudden a drought comes along and they run out of food. And because of a drought, they had to relocate to the land 
of Egypt. At the time, it was not a bad thing. At the time, it was a very good thing. It saved their life. And the king of Egypt gave them the best land that he had and said, matter of fact, why don't you take care of all my flock? It was a really good thing when they moved to Egypt. God loves his children. And God blessed his children. Matter of fact, he blessed the children of Israel so much, they began to be fruitful and multiply. And they grew in number and number and number. So much so, the Egyptians became scared. The Egyptians got nervous about them, so they said, hey, let's just oppress them. Let's make them our slaves. For 430 years, the children of Israel lived in the land of Egypt, and most of that time was in oppression and slavery. God loves his children. And God rescued the children of Israel. Thus, we have the book of Exodus. It tells the story of the exit out of Egypt. But they had been slaves for 10 generations. There was no one alive that remembered what freedom felt like. There was no one alive that even remembered what it was like to be able to make my own choice. They were told when to work and where to work and how to work and when they could eat and what they could eat and what they could do and when and where and how they could have children. They did not have freedom to choose. God loves his children. And he heard, his, and he heard their cry. And he sends Moses to set them free. The problem is they were slaves. They didn't know how to be free. They were used to a poverty lifestyle and they were used to a poverty mentality. And Moses marched Israel out of Egypt and God says, okay, here's the deal. I'll be your God and you be my people. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments became moral or even spiritual law for the nation of Israel. If you've ever studied the Old Testament and read the Bible, if you've read Numbers or Leviticus or Deuteronomy or whatever, you're like, yeah, but, but those books are just full of law. They are. Which were really more civil laws. Like God's nation building. They didn't know how to be free people. And so it's like, well, what do you do if my neighbor's donkey gets loose and he comes and eats all my corn? The Bible tells you how to deal with it. Or what do I do if I get this infected hair on my arm? What, that's in the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up, right? You know what I'm saying? And so God gives them spiritual moral laws in the Ten Commandments, but he gives them a lot of civil laws to do. And he also knows that faith is so important to a community. He knows that spirituality needs to be the center column, the center support to a people. Faith, spirituality, and religion needed to be central to the Jewish community and in order for that to happen, people had to give to make that happen. So he makes it a law. Everyone has to give. It's the law. Everyone brought offerings, sacrifice, gifts to the temple. I know I'm feeling a little teachy. Everybody still with me? All right. I can take the sweater vest off, but it just doesn't get pretty. When that stopped, even though it was still a law, when people stopped bringing offerings to the temple, the spirituality of the nation of Israel began to decline. The morality of the nation of Israel declined as well. You see, the Old Testament, it is a religious system that is built on laws, it's built on rules that God gave to Moses to give to slaves who had never been free so he could build a nation. That's the Old Testament. I want to fast forward to the New Testament. Let's fast forward to Jesus. Remember when I talked about Jesus said, blessed are the meek and 
Blessed are those who mourn, making fun of OSU fans, you know, all that stuff. That same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this right after that passage where he gives all these new definitions of what it means to be blessed. He says this, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Let me give you my take on this. It's what I call the Brent Kellogg version, the BKV, right? The law did not make you righteous. Jesus is saying, I did. Your faith in Jesus is what will please God. In the Old Testament, I had to keep these laws, these rules, these regulations. I had to do that to keep God. Keep, I had to do all that to please God. Now Jesus is saying, listen, there's a new way to please God. It's me. It's having faith in relationship with me. When Jesus died on the cross, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three gospels, they tell this story about this big curtain in the tabernacle, the temple. It's what was called the veil. When Jesus died on the cross, in that moment, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Let me tell you the purpose of the veil. The purpose of the veil separated everybody away from the presence of God. There was what was called the Holy of Holies. And the only person that could go in the Holy of Holies was the highest of priests, like the top guy. And he could only go just a few times a year. And they had to have all these rituals. And he had to be clean for all this. And they had to kill animals so he could just go behind the veil into the presence of God. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. You know what that means? The common guy now has access to the throne of grace. That means you and I can go boldly before the throne of grace. Everybody would now have access to the presence of God. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. No longer did a goat have to die so we could have church or a lamb have to die so somebody could go behind the veil. Jesus paid that price. Hebrews 4.16, let us come boldly before the throne of our gracious God. You and I now can go behind the veil into his presence. The 613 laws that were once required in the Old Testament to please God were no longer needed. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill their purpose. Their purpose was to make you right with God. I have come to fulfill that purpose. I don't have to keep a bunch of laws. I just have to have faith and a relationship with Jesus. And in that moment, when that veil was torn, there was a spiritual shift that took place. The Old Testament, I please God by keeping those laws. I, I, I please God by offering sacrifice and doing that. In the New Testament, the new covenant that we're under, that was established because Christ died on the cross, now the emphasis becomes grace. You're saved by grace. I didn't deserve it. I couldn't give enough. I can't keep enough good laws. Deserve to be saved. So I'm saved by grace, which is made clear in, in probably the pinnacle of the New Testament. One of the most famous verses, John 3, 16. For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's through God's Grace. So I'm under this new covenant, this grace covenant. I don't have to please God by keeping a bunch of laws. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, please God on my behalf, even when I didn't deserve it. Amen? Now Jesus said, if you love me, if you're really in relationship with me, you'll still keep my commands. But my commands, that won't please God. I still shouldn't murder Still shouldn't lie, still shouldn't cheat, but there's grace to forgive me when I do. 
I still should rest and worship and have a day that is set aside to be holy unto the Lord. But I'm under grace. If life gets crazy and if I mess that up, I still should honor my parents. But there's grace for when I fall short in that area. Now, I'm, dip my big toe into the danger of grace. All right, look at your neighbor and say, you still with him? Because I lost him a minute ago. He's, he's all out there. He's crazy. Let's go back to making fun of OSU. That was a lot funner, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to dip my toe. I'm going to talk about the danger of grace. What? You get the kids. What kind of church is this? I don't even know them songs they were singing up there, right? Listen, I need the grace of God more than the whole lot of you. I'm so grateful for the mercy and the grace that God has poured out on my life. I don't deserve the life I have. I don't deserve to be the pastor that I am. I am so grateful for the mercy and the grace of God. And don't hear me say anything but that. Amen? But there is a danger of man's misunderstanding and abuse of grace. We tend to minimize spiritual minimum. Let me say that again. We tend to minimize spirituality to minimum. Meaning, if I'm saved by grace, then why do I need to go to church? Does going to church get me to heaven? Well, no, no, no. Um, but the Bible talks about you really need to. Well, if I'm saved by grace, do I need to get baptized? Well, technically, no, but Jesus said that we need to be baptized. If I'm, if I'm saved by grace, do I need to give? I mean, if I don't give, will I still go to heaven? Okay, um, no, you, no. Why do I need to? And we can make this long list of things that grace gives us an excuse to get out of. It's awful quiet in this church. The beautiful and merciful doctrine of grace. I'm so grateful for it that it has minimized the impact of the church because human nature is to ask, what's the least I have to do and still make it? What's the least I have to do and still get to heaven? What's the least I have to do and still be a Christian? What's the least I have to do and still qualify? You got to be careful with minimums. If I ask, what's the least amount I have to do to be a husband? I'll be married, but I won't be a very good husband. What's the least I have to do to be a parent? I would be a father, I just wouldn't be a very good one. What's the least I have to do to be your pastor? I probably wouldn't be your pastor for very long. Because success requires sacrifice. Remember that moment? So the progression of generosity, all the way back to in the beginning God created. Here's the progression of generosity through Scripture. In the beginning, it was a choice. Adam, you've got all these trees. Would you choose to just give me this one back? Then it became a command. Because he was dealing with slaves who had lived in poverty and slavery mentality. So he had to make it a law. But under the New Testament, it's moved back to a choice. You can never give a dime and still go to heaven. Right? So... Jesus, by the way, says there is a natural blessing that takes place when you choose to give, but there's also supernatural blessings that take place when you choose 
Remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's the granddaddy of them all. So here's the natural blessings I want to talk about being generous. Number one, if you take notes, you might want to jot these down. Being generous teaches me to trust God. It really does. Not anything supernatural in that. Every time I give, there are 37 other things that I could do with that money. Some I want to do. There's some things maybe I probably ought to do. But when I give, it teaches me and it reminds me that God will provide all my needs according to his riches and glory. It teaches me to be disciplined with the 90% that he's entrusted me with and that I can trust God with the other 10%. It's a reminder. God's got this. He knows what you're going through. Are you going to have hard times? You dang skippy you are. You're going to go through tough times. Just because you give, it is not a hard times insurance policy. It's not. But this is the blessing. This is the blessing. Those hard times, in the end, they make me better. Romans 8, 28, is it alive or not? For all things work together for good for those that love the Lord and called according to his purposes. So even though I go through difficult times, God's blessing that he's using those hard times to make me better. When I give, it teaches me that I can trust God. Secondly, giving keeps my hand and my heart open. I have discovered people who are generous with money are also generous with kind words. People who are generous with their time, people who are generous with their money are also generous with their love. People who are generous with money are also generous with their life. Being a giving person makes you a likable person. The overwhelming percentage, and it's not 100%, there's still some grumpy givers, but you deal with that. But the overwhelming percentages, givers are happy people. God loves that. God loves joyful people that can connect all of these dots and are cheerful givers. Number three, giving ensures my legacy. Here it is again, success requires sacrifice. Success requires sacrifice. Paul set that up in Acts chapter 20. When I give, God uses that to advance his kingdom. God uses that to make a difference here in this community, but also in places of poverty. I don't ever want a building, I don't need a building named after me. I don't even need a room named after me. My luck, Matt would probably name the bathroom after me. You know what I'm saying? I just want to know, did people hear the gospel of Jesus? I just want to know, were kids loved on? I just want to know, were single parents encouraged and helped? Did older folks know you are not forgotten? This is your place. This is your body. This is your church. I just want to know that widows and orphans were ministered to. I just want to know that there was a city that learned how for their neighbor to love their neighbor, and it changed the city. And if that's going to happen, it takes you and I living open-handed and living open-hearted. 22 years in ministry, I have never had anyone. I am just so disappointed I started giving. I've never had that happen. Never. Typically, and there's been some people down through the years that I've challenged. And this is always the conversation. Man, I'm so glad I did. Giving open-handed and open-hearted. Number four, giving makes me like Christ. Remember that John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave. Jesus had a choice in that too. 1 Timothy 2.6, Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. 
I am most like Christ when I'm generous with my life. So in the Old Testament, giving was a rule, right? In the Old Testament, it was a policy. I have to. The law says I have to. In the New Testament, giving is a principle. You don't have to. You can be saved. You can go to heaven and never give a dime. It's just a principle. Old Testament's policy. I have to. New Testament, it's a principle. But if I will step into that principle, if I will give, there are natural blessings that take place in your life. Like I learned how to trust God. means it's going to build my faith. It keeps me from being a selfish person. It keeps my hands and my heart open. It ensures a legacy, not only for my life, but for my church and my city. And it makes me more like Christ. Those are very natural blessings that will acquire in your life. But I'm going to go one step further. When I give, the natural meets the supernatural. And this is the principle, not the policy, this is the principle I want to step into. Old Testament verse, Malachi chapter 3. You have cheated me of the tithes and the offerings that were due to me. This is the Lord speaking. Like you didn't give to the temple like you were supposed to. You didn't provide for the priest. You didn't provide for the church. You didn't provide for the religious system. Faith was not important to you. So you stopped giving to it, which led to spiritual decay and ultimately led to moral decay in your society. And here's what happened in verse 9. You are now under a curse. It started with their unwillingness to be generous people, and now they're under a curse. For your whole nation has been cheating you. And then he says, listen, but, but there's good news. And then he gives a solution. He said, verse 10, bring all the tithes. That word sounds like tenth. The tithe. It, it, it does mean, it means the first tenth. In the Old Testament, the principle of the tithe was if I had a crop out here of soybeans, I needed to take the first 10% to give to the temple. If I had goats, I needed to give the first 10 that were first 10%, if you will. The tithe, that's what that, what's that mean? He says, listen, bring all the first 10%, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough, root in, enough food in my temple. Make sure that faith is an important part of the community, right? So you've got to fund it, you've got to give to it. And then he says this, and if you do that, says the Lord of heaven's army, I will open up the windows of heaven for you and I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Watch this. Try it. Put me to the test. But that's an Old Testament scripture. And we live in the New Testament. What you got now? I don't know. Acts chapter 20, verse 35. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. I'm just going to put that out there. You know what I'm saying? In the Old Testament, the children of Israel were told, don't test the Lord your God. Remember when your mom would put that finger out? Don't you test me. He didn't come up with that. He got that from God, you know? Like, he was frustrated. He put that finger out and goes, don't you test me. You try my patience right now. I made you. I can make another one, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Do not test the Lord your God. I find it interesting in Malachi, when it comes to this idea of being generous, when it comes to this principle of giving, I'll tell you what, I know you're not supposed to test me. I know you're not supposed to try me but I'll let you. I will let you test me on this. It is such a powerful life principle. I will let you try me on this. I was telling Jerry this. There were years I didn't even preach on money because it was so offensive, right? I'm just in a different place in life. We're in a different place as a church. 46 years old. Let me just be your pastor for a minute and let me come at this from the same approach Paul did. I don't want your money. I don't want your gold, your silver, 
God has always, I've been here 17 years, God has always taken care of his church. Last Sunday we were supposed to celebrate 30 years of ministry. It's been incredible. That will happen, but God is always taking care of this church. Let me just be your pastor. Let me love you just enough. Let me just, let me just give you some pastoral love here for just a second. Um, don't let abuse keep you from God's blessing. Because there are some people that have got this wrong. There are some people that solely focus on the blessing. There's some people that I'm going to give what I can get out of it. Listen, I, I get that. There's some people that gave money to church and that church misused it. And some ministries had gold-plated toilets. There's a lot better places to spend gold than that. You know what I'm saying? Unfortunately, people have got this wrong. There's some that have just solely focused on the blessing side of it, yes, but that's happened in every area of life. Some doctors have got it wrong, but yet we keep going. Some teachers have got it wrong, but yet we keep learning. Some coaches lose games, and yet we keep forgiving. I'm all right, I'm very fine, I'm good, right? Don't let abuse keep you from God's blessing. Secondly, don't let critics dictate God's destiny for you. Like, don't let a critic rob you of God's blessing for you. You know what I'm saying? People are always going to find something to be critical about. That is not new. That is not new to social media. And if you listen to a critic long enough, you're, nothing is going to be worth investing in because they're going to find a problem with everything. Someone is always going to be making mistakes. Someone is always going to be getting it wrong. Let the promises of God dictate your life not critics. Don't let critics dictate God's destiny and God's blessing for your life. Amen, everybody? Everybody say, I love BK. You know that's never good. <laughs> Don't consume everything you can get your hands on. It's not good. It's not good to teach your kids that. It's not good for your heart. Find a way to be a generous person. And a moment ago when I was explaining that whole tithe, tenth, first, some of you are like doing the math on life. Like, you want me to give what? That's a, that's a big deal. That is almost a lifetime of learning spiritual discipline to get to a tithe. I think the tithe is a great place to begin. Jerry and I have given above and beyond the tithe for years. Some of you are like, I, I can't. So start somewhere. Don't consume everything you can get your hands on. Start at 1%. Start at 2%. I think it's a, it's a big deal. Here's, here's the deal. It's about being regular, faithful, intentional first. Regularly, faithfully, intentionally giving first. I love you. Giving is more than just your time, too. Scripture's pretty clear. Where your heart is, your treasure will be also. It does start with your money. And I'm not trying to make a political statement here, and I'm not, this is, this is a spiritual statement. Our nation is on a downward spiral of moral decay. And I'm not talking about politics. And you can go back and you can look at church attendance numbers and you can look at church contribution numbers in our nation's history. And that began to decline before the morals began. 
and before the spirituality begins. That happened in the Old Testament for Israel. They stopped giving, and then the spirituality declined, and then the morality declined. And it's happening in America. Listen, listen, God is not trying to keep anything from you. He is not a fun hater. Don't let me have any fun. He wants to bless you. There are natural blessings that he wants you to walk in, but he also wants to open up the windows of heaven and pour out a supernatural blessing. But you have to step into that principle. Last thing I would tell you this. Don't give to get. Give to give. Give to give. I give because I can. I give because Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of my sins. If he never does another thing for me, that's enough. That's enough. And so regardless of what teaching and all that's out there, and there are some that like you, you can give to get back and listen, listen, listen. Just give to be a blessing. Because I believe when you do step into that principle, God has a blessing for you. And it may never come in the form of dollars, but it's going to come in the form of fulfillment. I give to give because it's good for me. It advances the kingdom of God. I get to be a generous person because Christ gave his all. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.